Welcome to the pre-show. Welcome to the pre-show. Look what I got today. Ah, oh, is that an early copy? No, I oh, I don't know. No, I think this is a... I don't know. It smells new. And look what you got. Ta-da! Hey! There you go. Very nice. Yeah. See? I think about you. Sometimes. Yeah. Not often. No. But sometimes. You're right. Sometimes. What is it you're holding up? Because this is an audio podcast, not just a video podcast. Oh, shoot. Totally forgot. We have an early copy of Massey Hall, written by our friend David McPherson, forward by uh, guest-to-be, not on today's show, Jan Arden, uh, who is hilarious, by the way, on Twitter. She just drops F-bombs on anyone who gets in her way. But anyways, Massey Hall um, is reopening shortly in Toronto. And um, it is a uh, a history, a look back at one of the uh, iconic uh, music venues in Canada. Yep. We've had him on previously to talk about the Legendary Horseshoe Tavern. The Legendary Horseshoe Tavern. And we will have him on again to talk about Massey Hall. Yeah. I, I am looking forward to that venue. What shows do we have already booked there? Blackie? Black. I think that's the only one I'm going to from that venue. Yeah. Blackie, and, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. That's so, correct. With, yeah. We need to pull the trifecta off on that one at some point and get Colin Linden because so far we've had yes. Tom Wilson. Tom Wilson. Stephen Fearing. Stephen Fearing. And then we're going to go for Colin. Yep. There you go. Absolutely. So looking forward to that. I have a question for you, Greg. As we await, as we await our guest, John Orpheus. How did you get into music? How did I get into music? How did you get like, how did you end up being in a band? What led, what led to you? getting interested in playing music and then getting into like, how, how did that begin? How did that start? It was probably in grade three. Grade three. You were eight years old. Playing uh-huh. Winthrop in the sound of music, which we've talked about before with past guest, Josie Dyke. She was also in the sound of music. Oh, Not that's right. That's music not a music. Man. Oh, I blew that. Music man. Yeah. Yes, music man. That's right. We did talk about it on that uh, on the uh, inaugural show. That's true. Yeah. And so uh, I think it was. I think it was doing that at eight years old or whatever it was. Yeah. And uh, realizing, wow, this stage is pretty cool. This is pretty ego gratifying. I and like then you, this. And then you left it. You left music. So what are you, music. what are you doing now for, for your ego? What am I doing now for my you ego? Are, you are fighting Taking against fights with trolls on Twitter. <laughs> Is that where you're going to go? Yeah. 
<laughs> I was, I was going to go there. I was going to go there. Did you see there. that one last night? That was a good one. What I, I what happened last night? No, it doesn't matter. Nothing to do with music. Okay. It has to do with backing up friends when trolls come at them because of the color of their skin. Somebody came after me? No. Oh, uh, you? Friends, Suleiman and Mohammed. Oh, the guy still is coming after people? Uh, he came after the two of them, this troll. Uh-huh. And so then I just, uh, I jumped in and and this guy followed up and he called me a woke doorman. Oh, now we have a woke doorman. <laughs> I mean, like, what was buddy, I doing? Buddy, what day was I will play interference. I will play interference any yeah, given yeah. day with an <laughs> asshole like you. As long as you're looking back. over here. White guy to white guy. Look over here. I'm good with it. Come at me. Let's, uh, so you, you liked the stage in, when you were eight years old in grade three. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, were you, what was the name of your first band or, or what instrument did you gravitate to first? Piano, for sure. Uh-huh. Um, was it piano because you had a piano at home or? Yes. Okay. Well, no, my first instrument, well, my first love of an instrument was trumpet. Really? Yeah. Was, that a, was that a grade school instrument that you were, you had to it play? It was. It was uh, our neighbor. I think his name was Don Johnson, which is funny, but anyway. <clears throat> he was a professional jazz trumpetist. Trumpetist? Okay. Trumpet player. Trumpeter? And, uh, yeah. And he, I was always fascinated when he would play when I was little. Oh, okay. And I actually sucked my thumb longer than I should have as a kid. And that impacted and your ability to play the trumpet? No, actually, he said to me, if you stop sucking your thumb, I will let you play the trumpet, my trumpet. Oh. And uh, so you I, stopped like, I was very young at the time. And I was, uh, I was like, all right, cool. So that was probably, actually, that would have been before piano, if I think about it, for sure. That was, that was long yeah. before piano. All right. Yeah. That's weird. Okay. You're taking me down memory lane here. And your first band was The Life? Or the Stray Cats? What was it? What was the name of that band? No, not the Life. You think of plastic dolls? Nope. Border plastic dolls. National boundaries. International, International boundaries. boundaries. Plastic dolls. Uh, no, my first, my first made-up band with my friends playing in our, I mean, playing piano and my bud, uh, Chris playing bass and Dave playing guitar. I can't remember what we called ourselves, but it was like one of those like like scion or some stupid <laughs> like anyway you did the letters and the big sort of like slashes like an acdc or a kiss kind of thing and okay yeah. cool so yeah. you sh- you Not shared really, go ahead you shared um a discog page with me this week or last week of um of what of a cassette you guys had put out that was the life with uh with the with the life so do you have uh, rumors are, are are have been have been running wild in the past that you have you still have swag the life swag I do have life swag. lying I around have t-shirts I have tapes I have dude okay so all all I ask my birthday is November the 18th 
Okay. All that I ask, all that I ask is for a t-shirt. I think I have t-shirts left. The life t-shirt. And if all the members of the life can sign (laughs) the insert of the cassette of the, of the, of the, of the, you know, this, this part here. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I can, I, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I I want this signed. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I, Greg, I've never asked you for anything. I don't know if I can get them signed by them. I can get you a cassette for sure. All right. Do you have a cassette player? I have, I I have a cassette player right down here. I can't even, I can't even, I can't even listen to my own. I purchased it during Um, the pandemic. I bought a cassette player with AM FM radio and a CD so that I could play some of these CDs that you gave to me, that you gifted yep. me. Yep. And uh, some cassettes that I still have, especially this Led, Ze- Led Zeppelin collection that's right here. Nice. Yeah. Again, audio podcast, video from people on YouTube. They'll know cassettes. These are audio doing. cassettes that I that I showed. We'll have no, we'll have like have description. We'll have description as people are listening. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I have a T-shirt for you, maybe, and I, I I know I have a cassette for you. All right. There are two cassettes. I'll, I'll take two. Perfect. There there are two cassettes. Two cassettes. Yes. All right. And do you, and know, do you know how I figured out that when I saw that page that I sent you? Do you know why? It's because rave the producer rave yeah. drool. Yeah. 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 On Twitter, Tyler. Brave Drool on Twitter. Who's going to be a future guest of ours to talk about a specific important year in music that we've talked about last week. We're waiting for either Rave or Drool to get back to me on on a specific date. Okay. And um, it's funny because Tyler put out Tyler put out the the note the the he tweeted something like you know, before I join, welcome to the music podcast. You know, what what album from 1991 would you like to Canadian album, of course, because he's focused on Canadian music. Yeah. What Canadian album from 1991 would you like discussed? And and a whole bunch of people named, named a bunch of bands, and somebody mentioned Harem Scarum's first album, Harem Scarum. Yeah. And I said, Well, good call. I said, I've known the boys for many, many years, shared a stage with them numerous times. And that's what it done on me. Actually, Darren, the drummer from Harem Scare, who now plays, who's now singer for Jakey Lee's for Black Sabbath's band, he produced our nice independent cassette. Nice. Awesome. We're going to try to get that independent, the life cassette to possibly outsell Bare Naked Ladies Yellow Cassette. Do you, let's, let's try to do something. Yep. We'll uh, we'll just hang out outside concert venues. Hang out on Queen Street. Queen Street. Outside of the bamboo. Rest in peace. We'll sell it for like five bucks a piece. Or a loony, two bucks. Sure. Right? It would I'm just sure be cash flow right Yeah. Like sort of early 90s rock funk. Oh, it's coming back. It's coming back. And that was the pre-show. Brought to you by David McPherson's Massey Hall. The new book. Published by Dundurn Press. 
Greg, you don't rip books. Okay. You, you read them. So please, no ripping. You're welcome. <laughs> and that's the pre-show. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. I feel like we should do like a mm, Buddha breath happening. <laughs> um, yo, what's up? Um, my name's John Orpheus, a.k.a. Antonio Michael Downing. I am a Afro pop singer, a Trini troubadour, a maker of music, a performer of rhymes, a singer of songs, and I'm also a writer of books. Um, my book, Saga Boy, just came out in January, and the companion album, Saga King, just came out in August. Welcome to the music. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is so great to have you on with us, John. Really appreciate you joining us today. Boom, shakalak. I'm so excited. Yo, let's just bring bring all the things, man. I'm excited. Let's just go all the way there. Um, so, I'm ready. So, John, in, in your introduction, mm-hmm. you mentioned just about everything that you do. But, right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um. But, I, you know, we, Greg and I, on occasion, are known to do some research. Right. And I, I went on a deep dive into your comedy career. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things, there are some things, yeah. Yeah, so, so t- tell, me, tell me about that. Was that, was that just uh, an experiment to uh, figure some stuff out, to, to try on different things on stage? That was really interesting. I mean, I was like, here's what happened, right? Um, me and my homegirl, um, Madonna, we used, to, we used to just hang out, and we loved doing impromptu hangs. And I was okay. working in the financial district, um, yeah. you know, switching suits, uh, funding my underground career by, yeah, yeah. by, by taking the, the racist power structure's money and repurposing <laughs> it reparations as I like to call it um and she was like yo let's meet and I was like well I'm right here on on York so why don't we meet at um I did some research I said let's meet at Yuck Yucks right there on Richmond I'm not sure if it's still there and so we go to Yuck Yucks there's like six comics you know guys working in LA guys working for like they're pros they're pros and they all doing their thing. We're enjoying the show. And then right before the last guy comes on, the host says, oh, you know, we got a young comic that just wants to try out some new material. Please be kind to them. Here he is. And then Russell Peters comes on. And Russell Peters just killed it. And I got like this master class of comedy from like just starting out professional to um, I just played the ACC for my last show. And... And I realized that to be a comedian, you needed three things. And first of all, none of them was being funny. 
because basically huh. basically we're all funny if you don't make your friends laugh then you i don't know why they're hanging out with you so like being funny is a natural human thing here are the three things you need to be able to write because you got to write your jokes and you got to structure it and you got to clean it your lines got to be tight you need to be comfortable on stage like yeah. when a whole bunch of people are looking at you you need to be super comfortable and thirdly you need to have a kind of chip on your shoulder where you huh. want people's approval, but you want it on your terms. And there's only certain people that are like that. People either pretend they don't want approval or they say they want it, but they're willing to do anything to get it. But only certain people are like that. And I realized that night that I had all three of those things in spades. And I thought, and so I kind of like mentally cracked the comedy code. And I was like, I've never done this, but I'm going to try it. So I took the Second City uh, Stand Up 101. And basically from my first show, I was just killing people. And, and, and you know, I, I never had time because you got to be up all hours. Like, like music can work with the, with the day job game, but stand up comedy, you got to be up. Like, like the dedicated stand up comedian is going to six open nights open mic nights in one night like they're starting at 8 30 and they're going to bed at two and that's got to be a couple nights a week and I was just like yo let me just stick to what I know but it's a lot of fun and in fact one of my classmates uh Gary Joyce wrote an article in McLean's about my graduating class because there were a couple of there were a couple of stars in my class and uh and so your research didn't catch that, I can tell by the looks of no. it. No. <laughs> so, yeah, there's an article by Gare Joyce uh, about uh, that graduating class. Um, and, and our graduating show was like a, was a knockout. So, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what's up. I realized in it that I'd inadvertently been training separately with all the stand-up comedy skills. And so... I just wanted to do it. And I learned a lot. It tightened my writing. It tightened my stage presence. It like, it really honed in. Like, you know, yeah. like when you're on stage doing banter, it really honed my shit in. Like, and I really, under, I really understood what it was like to, to um, you have to be so clear, so concise, so on point in your delivery and your writing that it totally tightened everything else I was doing. But ultimately I just never had enough time. She's a jealous girlfriend. Um, mm. <laughs> comedy game. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's it's, it, Sorry. I was going to say, it's, it's funny you say that because back when I played way back, uh, it, Jeff, who was the lead singer of the band and myself, we, we practiced improv. We went to second right. city and studied, we practiced right. improv and it was for the the live show, but it's also in, invariably somebody's, you know, guitar string or is going to break or something. And you've got to fill that space. And we would use right. that improv to fill that space. So I, mm -hmm. I hear you. I mean, it really does help the show. What I wanted to touch on was, um, you know, Kareem mentioned, or you mentioned at the beginning of the different things and Kareem mentioned uh, about your, your foray into comedy um, right. transformation. And even when I read the book, like transformation, is seems to be a big thing in your life from, I think it was like 
you know, a play, I think you, you know, a play you did in school and a teacher that changed your name. I think when you moved to Canada right, and, right. and like the various personas that you've had over the years, why is, what is it about transformation to you? Well, um, that's a huge question. And first of all, thank you for reading the book. Um, it's, uh, I appreciate when anyone takes their attention and gives it to that. It's such a personal story and, and, mm-hmm. It's really beautiful to me that people can connect with my very personal story. Um, um, In terms of the question transformation, um, how to tackle it. Um, There's a lot of layers to that, Greg. I'll say number one, in Trinidad, uh, we have a thing called playing mass. And in Trinidad, where that started was at one time when the French Revolution happened, all the French aristocrats in the Caribbean ran to the Spanish speaking island because the Spanish king had given, um, had said, Hey, they're killing the Catholic. We, we, we support the French monarchy. So all you monarchists come live on our islands. And so Trinidad became dominated by French, like Marie Antoinette masquerade ball throwing kind of things. So they would throw their masquerade and, and the enslaved people wouldn't allow, be allowed to go. So we started doing our own mass. And the mass became not a place to hide, but a place where for three days out of the year, you had control of your own body and you could run wild and run amok. And, and, and so it was not a place to hide as we typically think of a mask. It was a place to reveal yourself. So mm. that's the first layer. Then the second layer was just being a kid who, you know, when I was 13, 11, as you know, everything I knew about life was suddenly gone. Like I literally went from living in a rainforest to living in a blizzard, like within like hours, like whiplash. And everything was gone. My grandmother was gone. My brother was gone. My, the culture, the food, everything I thought, like everything you think you would associate with home, whether it's your family, the street you live on, the school you went to, the music you listen to, all of those things that make up an identity was ripped away from me. And I was still here. Mm. Mm. And so what it taught me at a really young age was that, dog. None of that is actually who you are. Who you are is actually something that's that's independent of all of those things, because all of those things can change and you can still be here. Learn that lesson at a young age. Um, The other layer, I think, is because I was always a combination of going to six different high schools, which I, I, I illuminate in the book. Um, That's a lot. That's more high schools than years in high school. And 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 also being black and also being an immigrant and also being a nerdy kid. And I was a black kid that didn't fit into the black kid. Like, how do I know what use your illusion is where 99 percent of black musicians don't even know what that is? It's because I was listening like I was a black kid that didn't fit in. I was an immigrant. I was a lot of things that were outsiders. Right. And so I was always I think when you're always changing the scene you're in and when you're always being the outsider, then for me, it was always like, well, who am I going to be at this new school? 
And this is a chance mm. for me to be someone better at this school. Or I don't like these things about how I was treated at my other school. So guess what? I'm going to drop the nerdy sweaters. I'm going to I'm going to start playing basketball. Like so I every school change was a chance for me to reinvent myself. And I think you know, I hear this from a lot of uh, people of color. I hear this from a lot of queer folks who have a really strong sense of how they present themselves and they're always playing with it. It's because when how you present yourself, you know, sometimes could put you in danger. Sometimes it could just make you an outcast. Sometimes it could just make you like you were penalized if you didn't present yourself well. And I think what that makes you is hyper aware of a truth. And this is the core layer and the most important layer. All human beings are always changing ourselves. You think about it. If you're going to work, you dress away, you talk away, you act away. If you're going out for a night on the town, you might not even recognize that person that you see at the office, right? Because they're going to dress a different way act a different way, see them at a family gathering or a christening at a church. We're always changing our clothes and becoming someone else. And I think my upbringing just made me hyper aware of it. And I was always just kind of like, oh, that's just something you play with. That's not something that fi- that's fixed because who I am is somewhere else. It doesn't depend on my clothes. It doesn't depend on my friends. It doesn't depend on where I live even. It doesn't even depend on the language I speak or, or, or anything. And that was at first a terrifying thing, but when you get used to it, you realize that's kind of one of the deep, most profound truths of, of being a human being. So that's a big answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's a really, it's a really core question understanding me and the book and, and just mm-hmm. every, how I exist in the world, to yeah. be honest. Like literally before I got here, I've got a closet and I open it and there are like, there are Jack, there are John jackets and Antonio Michael jackets. <laughs> like, like it's a walk-in closet with like two different, two different lives there. Um, but again, I never, I never felt that was unnatural. I never felt it was because I was trying to hide. I just saw when I, what I saw was that everybody was doing it they just weren't intentional or didn't understand that they could change it for their benefit or they do. Cause come on. And women understand this a lot, right? Like if you're going, if you invite a woman to go to somewhere to a function, what's she going to ask you? She's going to go, what kind of function is it? What's the, what's the decor of room? What's the vibe? Like, because she's trying to figure out how do I present myself? And so it's very normal for us to be. So when I was in a punk rock band, I wasn't going to wear church boy sweaters. I was like, yo, I need a fucking army jacket with some patches on it and, and some art on it and some like stitch fella Kuti's face into it. And, and I need a badass punk rock nickname. That, <laughs> <laughs> like I was just dressing for the party. You know what I mean? So there you go. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Thank you. We were, uh, my cousin had a birthday recently and he rented out this bar on, uh, on Queen Street. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my brother's asking me, my other cousin's asking me saying, what's the dress code? Yeah. What, what, is this a lounge? Is it a bar? I said, dude, 
I'm too old for this shit. I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> and I, I couldn't care less what the vibe is. You know, yeah. I said, this is how I'm going. <laughs> yeah. You know, one, because, you know, you want to make sure you dress the part if that's of interest to you. But number two, um, I've been dressing for my home for the for the last yeah. 20 months, you know, so I don't know what it's like to dress up anymore. Right. <laughs> you know? And we never liked that shit anyway. It's just a yeah. lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of work, man. I think so. I think so. But it's funny. I will I will say, though, that I went into one of my clients offices and yeah. I got dressed up for the probably the first time in 18 months. Yeah. And it felt good. And you're right. It was like, you know, yeah. it's like even when I when I speak at conferences, as soon as I step on stage, I'm a I'm a different persona that's bottling up all my energies and anxieties and going blah right, right. as that persona. Yeah. But it was nice to get dressed up and put on the nice shoes that I haven't put on in 18 months and yeah. go down to Liberty Village and meet my client. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I did I've done a sum total, this is gonna shock you, of one single in-person book event and i've done probably 200 book events since the canadian launch and then the u.s launch of the books in the last nine ten months so but only one was in person and it was just awkward it was just awkward but i mean it was also a kind of a celebration like sure when i I played the first show i played the uh, mixed to festival uh, and that was my first show in almost 18, 20 months. Mm-hmm. And and the audience, for them, it was the first time they were in a crowd of that many people. And it was awkward and messy, but also a huge celebration. Like, it felt really good to be doing that. So, nice. Yeah. So, hey, it took me a lot to learn that, actually, because I'm from the rock and roll school where it's kind of like, pretension and dressing up is kind of like we tell ourselves that oh no I'm just gonna be real but I mean really (laughs) if you look at the history of rock and roll it doesn't you know Mark Boland was definitely spending some time getting ready uh everyone spent time getting ready the whole 80s was getting ready You know, oh, yeah. Kurt, Kurt Cobain said, oh, I'm just going to wear this lumberjack shirt. And then two years later, they were selling it at department stores. His uncurated look was suddenly curated. So, yeah, I yeah. Mean, we lie to ourselves, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious, John, about, um, you know, you, you talked about uh, being a black kid that didn't fit in. Um, mm-hmm. You introduce us to your grandmother earlier on. Uh, in, in the book and the impact that she had um, and, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously taking in th- those songs and uh, chants that, that she introduced you to. Uh, and then literally, you know, finding out, you literally talk about music in such a way that Hank Williams, David Bowie, Biggie Smalls all come yeah. together in one sentence. You talk about all of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where where did this like for me, where did this eclectic taste in music come from? Yeah, but I you know the thing about it, Karim, is um I I see it as one thing. I see it as one and the same. Okay. I was just I I think because I moved so much and because I just had a a curious mind. I always wanted to know the things I didn't know. Whereas most people were like, no, I'm a rocker. This is who I am. No, I listen to, um, 
you know, hip hop, New York hip hop. I don't even listen to Houston hip hop, you yeah. know, and that's who I am. I was the kid who always wanted to see to um, learn what I didn't know. Once I've done something, I didn't want to repeat it. I wanted to use what I learned to explore something else. And so for me, I was I got an opportunity to see patterns other people weren't seeing. You know what I mean? Like, that's really what it is. So if you look at like, um, like for me, Biggie Smalls, um, like to me, like what if you ask me what it is, right? If you ask me what it is, it's like um, it's storytelling. Okay. It's storytelling, like really with with those people that you name. That's what I see. Like, like, you know, if you take um, take Hank Williams, right? Like, just take take Hank Williams and be like, um, you know, your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through. Your cheating heart will tell on you. Right. Like right away. What what do you got? You got an antagonist. You got a protagonist. You have a tension. You have a drama. You have like like bitterness. You have like regret. You have longing. You have all of that in like what? Four lines. And then Biggie and then Biggie said, Biggie, you know, has the rap about Arizona Ron from Tucson. Right. You know, and 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 uh, and he and he says these four lines where he says he's telling the story and he says, yeah, that's when Ron vanished, came back speaking Spanish, lavish habits, two rings, 40 carats. And, and, I'm, and my head is just going, well, where did Ron go? What did he do? <laughs> like, how did he make all that money? Why is he back? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that effect I saw because I came at all those worlds with an open mind, I could see that Biggie and Hank Williams was doing the same thing. They were telling a story. And to me, I started fixating on the story, not the mode of telling it. Because it's kind of like you can tell it in all these different modes. But but what was important was the story you're telling, because that's what people responded to. And that's what actually moved you as an artist, but that's what moved the, the, the audience is the story that you're telling them, you know, like, or, or Iron Maiden talking about Alexander the Great, and, you know, he died of fever in Babylon and, and he's, t- you know, and he's telling the story of how Alexander fought Darius and I'm listening to this and I'm like 12 and I'm like, yeah, he's doing that biggie thing. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, so for me and, you know, it's part of my thing. Like, I think pattern recognition is is a fundamental skill that I have. But that's why that's how I became so eclectic. What presents as being eclectic is actually me just seeing the same thing in all these different places. And so for me, I'm just doing the same thing over and over. Even moving between the book and the album, Saga Boy to Saga King, like to me, they're continuations of the same story. I've just changed the medium. Mm-hmm. But to me, to me, it's just like learning another language, right? Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I find when like in listening to your music, the it the storytelling for sure, it but it goes beyond that into the sound and the the sonic because I mean the 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 
when I'm going through your, your repertoire, it's like the 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 mix of this of this the sound of the songs. You know what I mean? How like it wasn't like it wasn't one not, not genre, but I mean you mixed a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. sounds into there, depending on the song, and it goes song by song by song, yeah. which I thought was but, fantastic. But Greg, I would challenge that and say that that sonics and sound is story. Yeah, right? fair enough. Like BB King. I can yeah. tell, I just need to hear him if, like for half a bar, do that little vibrato thing. And I'm like, oh, that's B.B. King. And in yeah. that, there's all the hurt and all the, mm-hmm. all the tension of the blues. And so I just realized yeah. that, that the sonic, you can tell a story with, with the tones that you use and the rhythms that you use. That mm-hmm. too is story. The rhythms know? for sure. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like I mm-hmm. just, um, you know, I just I'm I'm doing on on I'm playing a gig, a really special gig to me on Friday with a group called Manteca who are like wow yeah. jazz greats. They yeah, backed yeah. up Leonard Cohen. They they famously <laughs> they told me about this <laughs> trick they played on Cohen where they pretended to not know any of his songs the first time they played together. And then as soon as they counted it off, they just nailed it. <laughs> and, and, um, and they also told me about this time where Miles Davis opened for them in San Francisco. Who knew why that wow. happened? Right? Like, wow. who knew why? But Miles just was walking by and he just looked at them in their dressing room. Didn't say a thing, just like sniffed at them like, you know who I am. <laughs> you know who's opening for who. And he just walked up. And we're playing a song of mine called Olaroon. Olaroon is on Saga King. And I was sitting, I, I come in here at 6 a.m. and I'm writing my novel, which is about African gods reincarnated in America. And I'm walking, um, I'm walking, waking up, and, and I'm walking and I'm thinking, and I just start singing this song, Olorun, Olorun, Olodumare is the, the Orisha of the sky in West African, in the West African pantheon. And I just start singing this song. And all I heard was just drums and voices. That's it. Drums and voices. And like a Greek chorus call and respond, like, yeah, I feel it. And the chorus is like, and it's like story and atmosphere and essentially i tell the story of my uh, my novel which i'm yet to finish in that song right and that's a perfect example how choosing tones and the tapestry and the drums and the and and the, just the tone of the voices can tell a whole story and and that's what i'm interested in you know that's the things that i love the most Sorry, John. Hold on. You're you're writing another book right now as we speak. Yeah, I mean, I've I've already written two children's books that are coming out next year. Um, wow. Sandy Boy is going to be a TV series soon, so I'm working on the pilot. Um, Congratulations. I yeah, um, the novel is. I, I'm always writing. I'm always writing. I'm always writing. Can you tell us a bit about the TV show? Like who picked it up? Are you allowed to say I anything? No, I, I am sworn. I don't. I might have already violated. I'm gonna stop. We don't want to. Don't want to get you in trouble. The, if they ask for the money back, I'm like, what money? <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> see, this, see, this, 
these gold chains I'm wearing. Look, there's no money. <laughs> but you think this stuff is cheap? You think this is cheap? <laughs> John. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up. No, that's it. That's it. That's all I had to say. I can't, I cannot tell you more, but yeah, we are working on these things. So, but I'm always writing. Like, I feel like I journaled a lot. Like if you read the book, you know, I journal a lot. And um, yeah, if I get up in the morning and I don't write, I can tell the difference in the day I have. So, oh wow, I just, yeah, totally. For me, it's like meditate, journal, exercise first thing in the morning, write sit down and write like by nine o'clock I've probably, I should, I probably have written a thousand words. Are you just writing whatever comes out or are you focused on something well, it specific? Depends. It depends. Journaling. I is just, that's just whatever comes. I try to be as, as unstructured as possible in, in that and just let the spirits move. Um, it could be anything. It could, I, I, sometimes I just draw pictures. It could be philosophy. It could be, you know, why am I, why am I still thinking about my ex from two years ago? It could be like, it could be a lot of, it could be a range of things, but, um, uh, but I usually have a project, a writing project that I'm doing and nice. just getting that done really sets me up for a good day. And so I'm always on that. And, and I'm always probably playing some music somewhere like, you know, during the course of the day, I'll, you know, at least an hour I'll be, I'll spend some time singing or playing. You know. Wonderful. Yeah. Listen, my, my brother would, um, would kill me if I didn't ask you uh, about, uh, about this back in uh, when he was in high school, I think second last year, last year of high school, he got all these hats made of his favorite band Right. And, you know, started selling them in his favorite band, probably to this day. Yeah. Although he's, he's now jaded because they're fighting his Oasis. And, um. His Oasis. Oh, Oasis. okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Huge Oasis. And we, we had a chance to see, we actually saw them in concert, uh, up in, in Barry. Oh, yeah. Uh, what yeah, year they, was that? I can't remember. 94, 95. Yeah. Did they make it through the full set? They did. Yeah, they oh. opened up. They opened up for my favorite artist. Yeah, which Who's is that? Neil Young. Neil Young. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. So, so I think ninety four, right. ninety five, somewhere around yeah. there. That sounds um, amazing. Oh, it was and a great show. Neil Young is a very um, unrecognized, huge influence on on Oasis sound. I think. I think Neil Young is a very like a lot of those big open riffs are are so yeah. very very Neil Young, yeah. and uh, and the tone of the lyrics like Noel has a very sort of mournful almost sorrowful way of of writing lyrics and of singing, mm -hmm. um, and when Liam sings it he puts the snarl in it and so you don't notice as much, but if you just took it out and just heard the words and just the melody, it's like, it's a very Neil Young kind of reminiscent, always looking backwards, always reminiscing, always longing, you know, for things that are past and can't be retrieved. It's very mm -hmm. melancholy to yeah. be honest. A lot of oasises, but we don't think like that because Liam's out there just just spitting it. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> that so, is true. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you wanted to ask an oasis. Tell me, yeah. Tell me about uh, about touring with with Liam and his and his band. Yeah. Oasis. I got, yeah, I got lots of stories about that. Yeah, BDI was so I was like, I so the Canadian connection because people are always like, well, how do you end up in a, a Manchester band with a bunch of dudes who? Yeah. Like, how does that happen? So. Uh, so it starts in Hamilton, um, where uh, of course it the, does. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Manchester yeah. and Hamilton. It's like <laughs> if Twin you go cities. into the Narnia clock cupboard and you open it, you go from open it in Manchester, you get to Hamilton, and vice versa. I think. Um, so yeah, um, so I'm in Hamilton, and um, and my. Um, Junk House, which is very famous '90s uh, Hamilton band. Um, yeah, I actually talked about Tom Wilson on the oh, the uh, beginning of the show. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I mean, my uh, Danny their guitar player, he mm-hmm. founded Catherine North Studios, and he was working with a he. I don't know how he found out about us, but he was just like like sent me a picture of the studio and was just like. Uh, it's not your buddy's basement studio, eh? And he was just like, I'm like, no, it's not. What are you, why are you emailing me? And that was kind of like our first, my first opportunity to be indoctrinated into the national level of Canadian rock bands or Canadian just music. And for two years, we made a record and Dan kind of rest in peace, who's passed away, unfortunately. He, um, he uploaded a lot of his music knowledge. So enter Gaz Whalen, the drummer from the infamous Happy Mondays, who are, you know, 24-hour party people. If you've seen the music, uh, the movie, they feature prominently, um, falsely accused of bankrupting factory records. Mm -hmm. Um, And Gaz tells a lot of great stories about being in Barbados at Eddie Grant Studio supposed to be recording the record but uh things went a bit sideways and uh um yeah and so gas has been touring the world since he was 17 his only job has been a rock and roll drummer to the world rock hero and him and his wife they moved to toronto because they're trying to find a di- they didn't want to be in england they had two mixed race boys and they were like look england's too racist so let's go to canada didn't like Toronto, thought it was bougie, moved out to, uh, to uh, Burlington and started recording in, in Hamilton and at, at Dan's studio. And one day the singer didn't show up. He, they sent him some money. Uh, they went to pick him up and he didn't get off the plane. Apparently he, uh, he had a drug habit and used the money on, on dope. Um, and so they're sitting there going, well, where are we going to find a singer who who does hip hop, but knows his rock and roll and can sing soul music? And Dan was like sitting there recording them on the very same servers he recorded us on. He was like, well, well listen to this. And, you know, 14 Guinness later, and I'm the, sing- I'm the lead singer of this band. I'm the front man, which I freaking love because I used to try. I like Manchester music was my shit. That was like, I loved like, you know, I liked Radiohead, but I identified with Oasis because they were working class and, and they made up for what they didn't have in privilege with, with swagger. 
And, and yep. you know, at, like, what's more hip hop than that? Again, mm. seeing the connections, right? And I was just mm-hmm. like, as a hip, a hip, you know, growing up around rappers, my brothers are, I just recognize the attitude, the attitude of working class kids who have nothing going for them, who are just like, I'm fucking having this anyway. Right. And that was kind of my attitude and my bands at the time. And so we loved Oasis. And so to say, like, we loved it. We used to everything they did. We loved it. And so, and suddenly I was going on tour with them and we played down um, on, on, you know, cause Gaz is as the happy Mondays, like Liam and Noel grew up looking up to those guys. Right. So those guys were like heroes to them. And so suddenly we're in this band. The band was called the the Hippie Mafia. And we were like, and we were, we were hot. We were hot. We were just hot. Like it, it was weird. It was like all the weird sort of eclecticism that you talk about, that you, like you say, I, I pretty much knew the whole history of soul music. There was no rock and roll posturing I didn't know how to do. And there was no hip hop I didn't understand. So I instantly got a platform to bring all of that together. And, and I don't know. And, and to, you know, just swag, like, just, I've always been comfortable with attention. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So the bigger the stage, the more comfortable I got. And it just felt lit. Like, so we're on tour with BDI on their first English Western Europe tour. Um, And Liam is watching every single show from side of the stage. I'm walking off the stage and the first guy to say something to me is Liam. He's literally sitting there going, you're a fucking top front man, mate. You fucking, fucking love your fucking top geezer, mate. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening with my life right now? And, um, and in fact, I'll tell you, this is my best story of it. Like, first of all, Liam was incredibly gracious. Like, I was pretty much ready to fight him at some point from all the stories I grew up listening to. But he was just like... He's just proper, he's just a proper lad, man, a proper son of the stage, like proper, there was a brotherhood in how he carried himself. And you realize it's, that was 20 years ago, right? From when I was touring with him, it was 20 years before. So, you know, even he was like, it's like, I'm my dad, you know, it's like, I've become who my dad is. I drop the kids off. I go to the pub, I come back home, you know, so that's the Liam I got. And he was just so cool. So we are in Birmingham. And, you know, the best part of that tour was that they, he hired a four-star a four restaurant to tour with us. So while we were sound checking, they would lay out a five-course meal. And we would just, after sound check, we'd just go and eat. And, and I knew it was dope because I was falling asleep and we had just played Birmingham. And it was the most people I'd ever played for. And as I'm falling off to sleep, I was thinking about the honey glaze on the pork, uh, on the pork, on the pork, the, the pork that they, the roast pork that they gave us. I was like, yeah, that was good. Wait a minute. Nice show. And in that, same, <laughs> in that show in Birmingham, we were a weird choice because I was a black guy. I was rapping. We were funky. And then we had these big Brit pop choruses. And it was like, we were dope. 
But a lot of people, like famously, opening for Oasis is annoying because it doesn't matter how good you are. People will boo and they'll be like, Liam, Liam. The Liam bots, I call them. They all have the haircuts. And, and so it's, it's a tough crowd. But we actually were frequently winning them over. In nice. Birmingham, there was, I get on and, we, and it's going great. At first, people are shocked, but they're getting into it. They're bouncing. And suddenly I see like a cup go flying. And then I see another cup go flying. And then I turn and I get hit with like a beer. Somebody hit me with a beer. My bass player, who's another Caribbean Toronto dude, um, Fitz Divine, Dion Fitzgerald, amazing painter as well. Um, Fitz takes his bass off and he's ready to jump in the crowd and, and pandemonium breaks out. We stopped the song. They like Liam suddenly appears next to me, snatches the mic and basically says, if you don't fuck, if you fuck with these guys, you fucking with me and basically points out the guys who did it and gets security to throw them out and then hypes the crowd out and hands me the mic back. And I was like, <laughs> fucking having this made. And I was like, I was like, let's go. <laughs> and nice. that was, um, yeah, and that was O2 Arena in, in Birmingham. And so that's the craziest story. But I mean, real gentleman, really brotherly. Like he like, he went to his, his clothing line, Pretty Green. They had all these retail stores. He went to the store after the second show and brought like, I don't know, maybe a hundred thousand pounds worth of clothes and just said, you know, have at it. Don't wear it if you don't like it. You know what I mean? And, and just laced us with gear. I still have some of the gear, but nice. that was the vibe on that tour. And so, and for me, it was a huge thing because I was in Kitchener and people were just always looking at me. Like you can imagine me in Kitchener, right? Like I'm always <laughs> pushing boundaries. I'm always trying to mash up and do different things. And Kitchener's a very homogenous town. And so there's always a struggle with me and Kitchener. And, and I was starting to lose confidence in myself. So then I did that tour and I was like, oh, it's not me. I'm kicking it with Johnny Marr. I'm kicking it with fucking like Stone Roses. I'm kicking it with the happy, I'm kicking it with like Andy Bell and Gem Archer. I'm like, whoa. And these guys are fucking treating me like I'm their equal. And so I'm like, yo, it's not me, it's Kitchener. So when I came back, I just packed my bag. I literally landed, I started packing. And within a month, I'd moved to Toronto. Because yeah. I was like, I was like, I'm not having that. So it put yeah. like a real fire in my tank. And probably I'm still riding that wind even now, I think. Nice. Good for you. Good for you. It's funny, um, you, you talked about, Liam side stage watching it actually reminded me of uh it was back uh about five years ago I guess and it was the 25th anniversary of Jane's Addiction Richard Delo obituel and right. so my wife and I drove down to Cleveland because they weren't playing Toronto and the show was open I think by the Screaming Trees and then Living Color and then <sighs> and then Jane's Addiction and to your to your point or similar to, to Liam Dave Navarro stood mm -hmm. at the side of the stage the whole time in awe watching Living Color just rip yeah. it. Yeah, because if like, you're a guitar player and you get to watch Vernon Reed every Reed? night, <laughs> you should probably do that. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I got goosebumps again here. 
just before, well, when the when the Raptors were in the playoffs, I yeah. actually got to see Vernon Reed play at Hughes Room, and I sat at the front table at Hughes Room watching him rip it up with um, uh, Aubrey Dale. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I I actually I met him at the Afro Punk Festival back when the Afro Punk Festival in Brooklyn. It used to be very much about black people playing punk music. Now it's just kind of alternative lifestyle black people playing like soul music and hip hop. But back then, like I met him and Black Rock Coalition was part of that. And mm-hmm. and I met him at that festival at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And it was like, I mean, for me, like, you know, people say about Smells Like Teen Spirit, you get the guitar riff. And then the drum, the drums kick in. And by the time it drops, yeah. the world had changed. For me, that's called a personality. Mm. That's, that's the that's the guitar riff and the drums kick in and then the world had changed. And I watched yeah. the video and I was like, I was like, <laughs> yeah, yo, yeah, I was like, oh, yo, yeah. it blew my, it melted my, my brain. And, and yeah. for me as a young kid, again, being that, black kid who was who was messing with rock music um it was validating right because i could say well you know we invented rock music you know look at little richard but i didn't like little richard that wasn't cool at that point (laughs) but suddenly it was like there was a contemporary band that was fire yeah fire and they were all black and they were singing about about those issues and just being real. And I was like, yeah, one of the best bands ever. One of yeah. my favorite bands. Me ever. too. My probably with the Peppers, probably my equal favorite band ever. Uh, certainly yeah. one of the biggest on my musical career. Yeah. No, no, I feel you. I feel you on that. Yeah. I, I mean, just just. They were all so killer, and the songs and Corey Glover. Do you know? Little known fact, Greg. You know, you know, Platoon, the movie. Platoon. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know Corey Glover's yeah. in that. Oh yeah. No, okay, yeah. 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 I was yeah. like, I was shocked to see him in there, young Corey Glover. Oh, I'm yeah. like, yo, I'm glad you, I'm glad you stopped your acting career to sing us a few. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully. Nice. Um, John, let's take a little break here. You wanna you wanna play us a tune? Yeah, sure. Let yeah. me um, hold on. Give me a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What uh, what do you, what do you think we're gonna What do you think you want to play? song called uh soul of the city i want to play it because i i as i was telling that story about uh touring with liam and bdi and and how i came back and i packed up and i moved to um and uh and i moved to um toronto it was like this is the first song i wrote when i landed there and it was just my girl at the time we had moved together. We hadn't moved in together, but we both came to the city at the same time. And it was just about 
the opportunity, but also the pace and also how tiring it was and how like being in the subway, like at rush hour, I was just like, yo, this is terrifying. With the, with the <laughs> anyway, um, so I haven't played this song in a long time, but I'm going to play it.
Awesome. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If if I knew you needed a trombone, my son mm. plays the trombone. Oh, word? Yeah. So, but next Thank time, next time, I'll prep Thanks. it. We'll prep it. We'll prep when it. we get together in person yeah. at Radical Road Brewery on Queen East, where we normally get together with everybody outside of COVID times, we record there. And we often ask our guests to play a few songs for the crowd. So hopefully uh, Yo, we can do that. Get, do we can have Cashmere to play trombone for you. Yes. Let's do that again. Yeah, please. Absolutely. Let's get the absolutely. voice gigging. Let's get absolutely. <laughs> so, John, one of the one of the the, uh, the the topics or one of the segments that we'd like to do, and we chop it up into you know. Um, anyway, one of the segments that we like to do is around <laughs> lost venues. Hey, this is actually you know what the funny thing is. I'm totally blowing this because this is usually his, and he just put to me in chat to go. Okay, you do lost venues. I'm like, all right. Okay, <laughs> well, he's throwing me under the bus here. Anyway, so we 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 like to ask a guest about a lost venue, a place that you know you played. Um, it, it meant something to you. It was a wow experience. It could have been a really shitty experience. We've had some people bring that up as well. So, can you share a venue that's no longer with us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, there's only one venue where every single band I've ever played in, like serious band has played that venue Hmm. and that's the starlight lounge rest in peace in waterloo so the owners uh josh and bernie um like they were always around on the scene if you if you do live music in kitchener waterloo you know those guys and that was always the place you wanted to play and and then over the years, they just became like a super supporter, like so many great moments. Like, like I said, every band from my first blues rock band, Gen Militia, my punk rock band, my soul music band. I launched my first novel there. I played with uh, Danny Michelle there, folk singer Danny Michelle. I played in his band there. Um the J.O. band has played there. In fact, we were scheduled to play there April 1st, 2020. And the lockdown happened right before that was supposed to go down. And so we canceled that show. Hmm. And, and it went under like probably six months after that. So, yeah, shout out to that venue because um, really there's few venues where it's like every single time I had a thing it went down there it, in so many ways and so many other events that I had never, um, that I, that were, weren't my band shows, but they were other band shows or we were invited in to do something like book launch. Um, a guy named Jason Snyder um, wrote a book called um, 3000 miles about these kids who had a suicide pack after Kurt Cobain committed suicide so we had a show where all the local bands played nirvana songs and nobody had seen my band and they put us on first and we just friggin we were hot to try and and (laughs) and it was like it was like a coming out party for my band because no one had really you know the bands are always gigging on the same night so you never you hear about bands but you never see them but that night we were all there and we just like we stole the show. Jason himself said that. He said, like, I talked to him like a couple of years ago. He was like, man, you guys set the bar for that. And uh, so, so many great moments there. But unfortunately, it's like, you know, it's university town and live yeah. music 
live music is uh, is not in favor right now. No, oh, don't, don't we have don't we have Jason? Don't we have Jason coming up as a guest in to talk about nineteen ninety one? I think so. Talk about nineteen ninety one. We do, we do. Uh, in December, if, if I've totally blown this, I'm going to completely edit it out and post. But I think, yeah, December. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we do. Yeah, Snyder. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. JSM, yeah. J- yes. Jason Snyder Media is his company. That's yeah. right. Yeah, he's yeah, coming yeah. on. Him we're gonna, and, we're gonna talk about the influence in 1991. Yeah, him and, him and Michael Barkley. Yeah, so so Jason Snyder, it, while we're on that subject, he's also written about almost every art project I've done since the 90s. Oh. Every band, my both my books, every album. Like anytime I've had something to promote, Jason has written about it. Wow. So, awesome. so that's it. Awesome, so awesome. there you go. <laughs> you got some yeah. trivia. Not as far back as 91, but <laughs> you can throw that in. He'll definitely rep. He'll oh, definitely. Sure. He's a great person to ask about how <laughs> weird it was for me being a black kid doing music in Kitchener. Because he saw him. it. He saw it from the outside, right? Like yeah. I, you know, yeah. I was just kind of like, I don't care. I'm just doing my thing. <laughs> he can tell you sort of how people looked at me, and he oh, was shit. always really supportive. And he was one yes. of the first guys who was like, "Yeah, man, living color, bad brains. Yeah, man, I get it. Like, keep doing what you're doing." And he was like, you know, there was only a couple people like that. So, yeah, awesome. Well, shout out to the Starlight Social Club. Uh, John, that song was also amazing. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for yeah. for playing, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, before we let you go, we want people to 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 listen to your music. We want people to pick up your book. Uh, tell everybody where can they go to get this stuff. Yeah. So the Saga King and Saga Boy, first of all, I see them as uh, the memoir Saga Boy and the album Saga King is like like two halves of of the same piece of art. Um, The book is everywhere. Like, I mean, I was just in an indigo at Eglinton and Young and just walked in like any bookshop, like anywhere in the country. You can you can find it right now. So go on all the online places you can find it um if you buy local ask your local bookstore um they either have a copy or they can get one really quickly so no issues there it's on penguin random house um the album same thing it's online like whatever wherever you like to listen to music go uh just look up john orpheus uh saga king either one or both and and it's there. Really proud of it. Really proud nice. of the music. Um, and yeah, get at me on the social things. I have the Insta ting, the Twitter ting, the Face ting. I have the Snap ting. All the ting them. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Awesome, John. Thank you so much for joining Thank us, you. buddy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Greg, Karim. Appreciate you guys, man. Awesome. Um, and yeah, you guys can have me on to talk about other stuff other than stuff I'm doing because. I'm down to talk about cool. all the things. So I'm just saying, I'm putting myself out there because it's a lot let's, of fun. Actually. Let's do it. Once, once we get back into the, the the bar and recording live from there, yeah. let's get you back in. Let's have a chat. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Perfect. Blessings, guys. Take care.